You're listening to Dr. Ward Bond's Life-Changing Wellness, the fastest-growing natural health, nutrition, and inspiration podcast in the nation. Uplifting stories, powerful messages, and triumph over adversity, the experience of entertainment and encouragement is about to begin. And now your host, Dr. Ward Bond. He is an auto racing icon and considered by many to be the greatest race car driver in the history of the sport. Mario Andretti's achievements are legendary, and the world watched as he won the Daytona 500, the Indianapolis 500, as well as four IndyCar titles, and ultimately, the Formula One World Championship in 1978, an unprecedented trifecta, and no other race car driver has ever won all three titles. And Mario took the checkered flag 111 times during his career, a career that stretched five decades and across six continents. Ladies and gentlemen, it is with great honor to introduce to you one of auto racing's most famous living legends, Mario Andretti. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Bond. You're very kind. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've had a very uh, amazing career, but I want to kind of step back in time a bit. Um, I was doing a little study on your family history. And in 1948, you and your family ended up in a refugee camp in uh, Lucca, Italy, because of the uh, Istria exodus. What was it like for you and your brother Aldo? Because you were only, what, eight years old at the time? Well, you know, as kids, uh, you obviously know that something is not right, for sure, because of the, uh, you know, you look at the, your parents' demeanor, attitude, and, 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 and conversation. But uh, at the same time, uh, kids are probably the best ones to adapt because, um, you know, you go to school and, and you have buddies there and you play, you do all those things. So uh, it did not affect us as kids at all. And I say I have a twin brother, Aldo, and um, a sister, Anna Maria. And, uh, and, and again, you just, uh, you just go along with it and you make the best of it. Uh, so again, uh, one thing for sure, you know, thanks to my dad, we were never hungry, never cold. You know, he took good care of us always. Now, you and Make Aldo sure. are, are twins, correct? Yes, indeed. Uh, identical? Identical twins, yes. So am I. So we have that in common. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. Well, uh, what is your fondest memories of Aldo? Uh, his positive attitude throughout. Uh, Aldo was, uh, in fact, that was a perfect example for me to, to follow, quite honestly. Uh, always thinking, I know it's a cliche about uh, uh, looking at uh, your glass, always to be half full. And uh, by that I mean that, um, you know, he and I uh, started out as kids uh, with the same dreams. We had the same passion coming on and uh, and the objectives obviously was to be both race drivers and uh, we started all that together uh, when we arrived in the United States. Uh, we, uh, two years after arriving here, we started building a car to race locally. We raced locally. Uh, we won. We did a lot of all the good things together. And, uh, but uh, uh, he was not as fortunate as me because uh, it started out at the very end, the very first season when he had some critical injuries. He, in the last race, and he was in a coma for uh, a long, long time. Had to take a sabbatical, continued for 10 more years, and then he had a, 
uh, another accident in 1969 that ended his career. But at the same time, you know, he went on and he, uh, we got, he had a business, you know, in fact that we had a business together and he, and he ran it. And, um, and, but his passion of being a race driver was all over. But at the same time, he just became my biggest cheerleader. Never, ever, ever once thinking, you know, why me, why, you know, I wish I could be in your place and all that. Uh, and, and that was a perfect example of how to lead you with your life, with whatever you handed, uh, you know, that uh, you can put your chin in your socks and, uh, and live there, or you can just live highly and uh, look at yourself in the mirror every morning and feel pretty good about yourself. Well, you know, you bring up a good uh, point here with, uh, with Aldo, who had suffered some injuries and in a couple of crashes, and you have seen all of the sports. I mean, you've seen Formula One, IndyCar, NASCAR, you know, you know, IMSA. You've seen it grow from the early stages where, you know, you actually saw Alberto Ascari race. And from the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, into the 80s, and now, you've seen it where the sport technically had no safety whatsoever to now we're looking at aero screens and halos on Formula One cars. I mean, what was that like back then that when you got into a race car, you know, you knew it was dangerous, but just the thrill of winning, did that overcome the thought of how dangerous the sports really were? Well, there's no question about it that, um, you know, if you were going to dwell on the safety aspect, uh, because that's all we knew at the time. I mean, we accepted, had to be accepted. You know, the, the tracks uh, were what they were. I mean, there were bridge abutments, there were this and that that you could hit. And uh, and the race car themselves, I mean, uh, you know, very little protection if you got upside down, I had a flimsy roll bars or something like that. But uh, at the same time, uh, you didn't have the structural uh, uh, complexity of today's cars in any way including the stock cars, which were much safer at the beginning as well, even back in the 70s or 60s or 70s, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the open-wheel car. But the sport has evolved, you know, and um, uh, going back to, okay, why did we race? Did we, uh, again, like you said, uh, were we concerned about the safety? Yes, to some degree, but uh, you didn't dare, uh, if you dwelled on it, you didn't belong in the business. That's how they story it, because... Uh, you had to go in there with your eyes wide open, but at the same time, you know, if you hold back half of one percent in your driving, uh, somebody's going to run over you, and it's that simple. Uh, you know, so you're going to you're all in or all out. That's the way I always looked at it. Um, I think in some ways you figure, well, you guys are crazy. Well, maybe so. I mean, uh, you look around. I mean. Uh, uh, I look back at my career, how blessed I've been, quite honestly, uh, doctor, that um, uh, I lost so many, I lost closest friends. Uh, I had, um, you know, my twin brother, you know, that suffered from that. At, um, my younger son, Jeff, had a career-ending injury at Indianapolis in 1991 and, you know, things like that. So. Again, it's um, uh, the sport could be, and it was cruel in so many ways for so many people, so many drivers. Um, and but somehow I dodged the bullets myself, and uh, 
I was able, as you said, uh, pretty much, uh, you know, drive race cars for 50 years. Uh, and uh, that gave me the opportunity, you know, to, to probably um, uh, accomplish uh, all, all of my most ambitious goals, quite honestly. Um, uh, and, uh, and again, you know, that's why I say it all the time and I'll repeat it. I count my blessings every day. Well, was there ever a, uh, a, a particular racetrack with a particular car that uh, was probably so scary that you maybe questioned your career? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I've raced the, some of the most dangerous ones. You take the, uh, uh, the, Nur the Nürburgring in Germany, for instance. Uh, you know, no question uh, as far as the safety aspect, you know, it just was non-existent. And uh, the first time that I raced it was, in, you know, in 69. So uh, it was bare, bare, bare minimums there. So, uh, but uh, I'm just happy that I had the opportunity to race there because they stopped actually racing there on the long circuit just because of that. It just, uh, no matter what they did, there's no way they could ever comply with what is, you know, required, uh, you know, in modern times. So, uh, but um, again, you know, it's just... Uh, it was what it was, but I never once, uh, if I was going to enter uh, a race, you know, the, being doubtful, okay, you know, maybe, you know, maybe I shouldn't be doing this, then I should just hang it up. You know, you just, uh, that attitude never existed with me, and, and maybe I'm stupid, maybe I'm crazy, but that's the way it was. Well, I think you have to be a little crazy to become the champion that you are, because you know, with all of the drivers today, there has to be an intense focus. It doesn't matter if it's NASCAR, IndyCar, Formula One. You have to know what you want and how to get there and cross that finish line. Uh, with you, if you were, let's say, if you were 21 years old today, which racing series would you actually want to race in? What I did uh, primarily, which is open wheel, single seaters, uh, which would be IndyCars or own and or Formula One. Um, that's the part that um, attracted me the most. Um, I did the other disciplines because uh, I was curious and, uh, and more than that, I think I was interested in seeing just what's going on on the other side of the fence. And, um, and having the opportunity to be driving for some top teams, uh, I, I scored some you know, some good uh, results there that uh, mean everything, you know, it's not a matter of okay, I'm going to drive, uh, you know, something that's out of my uh, rodeo, if you will, uh, and just experience that. I wanted to win, and, uh, and that was the ultimate satisfaction that I derived. But, um, you know, going back, um, single-seaters single seaters are the purest form of the sport, no question. They're not a derivative of anything. They're just built for that purpose, just like a fighter aircraft, you know, and... Um, only to go fast and win, and uh, <laughs> that's it. That's the only way I can put it. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, Formula One is for me out of all uh, motorsports, that's my favorite. And I've been following Formula One since 1975. And you know, you are one of the very rare race car drivers where you raced in different types of series and different types of races. The only one that even comes to my mind that was 
almost doing what you did was AJ Foyt, but I don't think AJ ever drove an F1. His deal was NASCAR, midget cars, and definitely Indy. How, how do you yeah, become I mean, a well-rounded driver? I think it's you're driven by desire, you know, the desire to do something. And, uh, and that's something I have plenty of, you know, this uh, burning passion, you know, to, to be driving. And, um, and that's, that's the only thing that, that, that works in, in a business that's so competitive. But I just got that satisfaction, that personal satisfaction. I, I look forward to going to work every single day. I mean, I couldn't get enough of it. I mean, I, <laughs> it's my wife. I mean, she, you know, she's not here anymore. But I mean, uh, but at the same time, she was actually um, such a powerful force in in just keeping me uh, serene, if you will, doctor. That, that to the point that never complained about. Oh, Mario, you're. And I knew I was. You're very selfish, you know. What about some picnics, you know, like everybody else is doing over some weekends when, when you're actually not racing your your primary um, commitment? And because I used to plug up, you know, if I had a, I, I give you for instance, you know, I was even the year where I won the world championship. I'm I'm testing in Silverstone, England, on a Wednesday, and we have uh, the following weekend is an open weekend in Formula One. And so I, the test was over, and, and Colin Chapman says, "Okay, Mario, what are you doing? You staying here? You going back home?" Uh, yeah, I'm going back home, and I'm racing this weekend for Roger Penske, you know, in Michigan. <laughs> you know, did I have to do that? No, but that's it. You know, I wanted to plug every hole that I had, and you know, I I, I used to race 35, 40. You know, if you look at some of my record, like 51 races a, a year. You know, which uh, and and sometimes going to different continents at the same time. You know, and so uh, I kept busy, but that's what I wanted. And, and going back to, to my wife, uh, uh, you know, but having that support, not just by saying, "Oh yeah, do it," but just not nagging me or just even making me feel guilty or in any way. Uh, spend more time with the kids and all that. No, um, uh, she would just quietly supporting me and that's what I needed and I only realized a lot of that how important that was to me you know later on in life when you obviously have to have time to just uh, go back and uh, and 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 you know and and, and and think about you know what what has happened and uh, I figure oh my goodness I couldn't have done without her you know and when you reflect is what I what I was trying to say yeah, it's always great to have a very strong woman behind you. I'm lucky enough to have one of those. Been married 34 years and, uh, you know, always being supportive. And uh, I, I just love hearing that, Mario. And you bring up Colin Chapman. How would you describe racing for Enzo Ferrari and racing for Colin Chapman? What's the differences? Well, two icons. Uh, you know, they're uh, as uh, important to Formula One and when you just mention their name, Formula One comes to mind immediately. You know, uh, Colin Chapman, look at, the, you know, what he's done, how many world champions he created. And, uh, of course, uh, the Enzo Ferrari, you know, the same way. I mean, these individuals uh, were magical. And, uh, you know, to have them on your side, um, it was, you know, everything that any driver could dream of. 
Uh, you know, I uh, I go back to uh, 1965. I got to tell you this. I was already, you know, I was in my rookie year at Indianapolis. Um, Jim Clark won the race. I finished third. Of course, Colin Chapman was there, and I befriended him throughout the month. You know, we were there, and um, and but again, in the back of my mind, I said, you know, in my during my career, hope I get the chance to do Formula One. Of course. That was always in the back of my mind. Even when I was driving midgets, I was thinking of that. Um, so uh, we were saying our goodbyes at the banquet after the race, and uh, and I told Colin, I said, um, Colin, someday I would like to do Formula One. And he said, Mario, when you think you're ready, you call me. I will have a car for you. Can you imagine how I felt at that moment? I thought I just went to heaven. And... Uh, and so, you know, it's moments like that, I think, that uh, just just give you all that, you know, energy, you know, to just, you know what, it's up to me now, up to me now to just prepare myself the way, uh, as much as possible. I, I was lucky enough to be able to join the uh, Le Mans program with Ford, which, you know, was just, a, you know, just immense program, a lot of testing, a lot of development, and all road racing, and uh, that did wonders for me, uh, because... Uh, uh, I'd be friends, I were very close friends with uh, Bruce McLaren. In fact, you know, we won uh, uh, Sebring together. But uh, during the testing, you know, I used to go and watch his, his, uh, uh, how he was dealing with it, especially um, the, 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 uh, the slow corners primarily, how he would rotate the car and so on and so forth. You know, he was, um, he was quite the specialist in those areas. And, you know, I learned so much, and that, that's, you know, that, that's what I needed. So yeah, three years later, I figured, I'm ready. And uh, I called him, and he said, uh, I will have a car for you. And we tested in Monza in Italy. And, um, and then, um, anyway, it's a long story there that I didn't race it. But my debut was at the USGP uh, two weeks later, uh, and, uh, and I was on pole. I put the car on pole. You know, so that was um, as good as it could get, as you can imagine. Uh, I was teammates with um, Graham Hill, you know, and uh, uh, so, uh, and I had never even seen Watkins Glen. That was as, uh, to me, it was as, as, as new as any other track in the world, you know. So uh, that was a good, um, again, you know, a lot of satisfaction that, from that standpoint. But again, you know, I was fortunate enough to be with top equipment. And um, and that's what it takes. Well, was uh, you know I've heard stories about Enzo Ferrari. Was he a hard man to uh, to impress? Well, you know anyone is hard to impress. You know it's just that, that the one thing that I noticed that he he always appreciated uh, a driver really giving its all. And by that I mean uh, I'll tell you in 1969 was the first official race that I did for Ferrari. I had done one before, you know, like um, in, I think was doing some testing, but anyway, and, and um, uh, I was in Italy and Monza and that's the only race that he would go to. He would not really travel outside the country. And uh, so he was there for that race and I was team, uh, uh, my teammate was uh, Chris Amon, which was, was very good, very quick. And, um, and my first time there, so I was quite new, and, and I was trying to, I figured I got to impress the old man here, you know. So, and I'm out there, and I, I crunched the car a little bit, you know, during practice. 
And I figure, oh my goodness, oh my God, I, I, I hope I have a return ticket back to home, you know, and all that. And um, I'm pulling in the pits and there he's standing and he's got a slight smile on his face. I figure, and then later on I realized that, you know, he would never ever, uh, like, get on a driver, penalize a, you know, a driver that's that's really giving his all. You know, sometimes sometime you got to crunch a car a little bit. That means, you know, you're at the limit and all that. And and, uh, and I found that, I figured, well, there's a real racer here. And because, you know, later, many years back, you know, like uh, when I was testing in Furano just before my very last Formula One race, which I did for Ferrari in 1982, uh, substituting for unfortunately, you know, there were two fatalities on that team that year. Um, and um, I was testing in Furano, the, the, the factory test track, and and uh, and I set a record there that lasted actually eight years. And um, and just to get that smile from him, you know, that just a slight smile of satisfaction, <laughs> it's it's so awesome, you know, for for a driver to see that, you know, because. Uh, uh, he he obviously you know he he approves he gives you that smile of approval if you will you know so uh, and again uh, yeah magic times actually with these two individuals for sure well with with Colin Chapman he was a genius when it came to downforce so I want to ask you this but in 1978 the Brabham fan car debuted at the Swedish Grand Prix driven by Nicky Lauda. How long did it take you to figure out that that fan wasn't just used for cooling, but sucking that car to the track? Oh, well, well we knew that because it was not really that new because uh, Jim Hall had done that with the Chaparrales, you know, and um, so in the Can-Am series and uh, very successfully so. Uh, it's just that, um, you know, that particular side of the aerodynamics was not regulated. So uh, Gordon Kirby, uh, no, not Gordon Kirby. Um, no, I think it was Gordon Murray. Gordon Murray, yeah. Yeah. Gordon Murray, the designer, you know, he figured, well, we'll do that in Formula One, which is one step better than, you know, the natural ground effect, you know, just by designing it. And of course it worked. I mean, he was, you know, he was in a class of his own, you know, so all we were doing is spitting rocks out of our mouth, you know, that, uh, because that's what that thing was doing was, it was like a, yeah, a, like a vacuum cleaner and anybody behind, I mean, all you got blasted, you know, with the, uh, but at the time the race was over, the, the track was as clean as, uh, as could ever be. You know, so. Now you finished second well, behind Nikki, didn't you? In the Swedish uh, Grand Prix. So, yeah. 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 And uh, so how long did it take them to ban that car? Wasn't it just uh, within a day or a week? Immediately after that, yeah. Wow. I mean, it's, uh, it was, uh, you know, you had to try to imagine to have uh, 20, you know, a, a field of all those cars with those fans and so forth. <laughs> you couldn't deal with it. I mean, it was dangerous. I mean, those things were spitting out, could have been spitting out bolts or whatever, you know. So there was a danger aspect on top of everything else, you know. So they um, obviously they had to deal with it on the rules side and it was banned. Well, it was it 1979 in which uh, the Lotus was uh, banned for, was it a double ground effects design that Colin had created for the 79 car? 
1980. I think it was in 1980 where he came up with that. Uh, actually, it was a car that it was sort of pushing the rules, uh, you know, to the point that uh, uh, he was actually getting downforce on the unsprung part of the of the car of the suspension, which uh, is the optimum way to do it. But uh, that was a no-no, uh, clear no-no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but he, he thought he'd get around it. Yeah, but you know, one of the things that I loved about the racing uh, from the '70s, the '80s even the 90s, I like the fact that people like Colin Chapman and others would push the envelope of car design, uh, maybe not to the point of what Frank Williams did with the 92-93 the uh, Williams that basically could drive by itself, technically, you just needed a driver. Um, but do you think the rules are too strict today and across all the different series that uh, doesn't give car designers, so to speak, enough room to really push the envelope a little bit? Because now if they push the envelope, it's considered cheating. Well, here's the thing, uh, Dr. D. Uh, I think today for uh, the technology that's available, uh, the uh, I think the technical side of the sport that, 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 that decides on, on rules they have to keep so much in mind about and uh, not make it so. Uh, you can make it so, as you said, that the cars almost drive for themselves. You know, so they want to keep so much of it in the hands of the driver, and mechanically, just like for instance, uh, uh, you want to uh, change slightly, change the aerodynamic, the, the you know of the front wings or something like that, and um, you have to do it mechanically. A, a mechanic has to do it. You could. But you could easily do it, you know, just on the steering wheel, you know, just to do all those things. So they want to keep it as a sport as much as possible. And, uh, and that's a daunting job, you know, to, to really try to do that. Now, from a designer standpoint, yeah, you don't leave nothing on the table. I mean, you could see that in Formula One, they, they try to have flexible wings. So, you know, done the straightaway, the straighten out, so you don't have as much uh, frontal area. Uh, and, and a lot of the, they try to always, you know, the, the, the challenge is always to try to get away. It's just like a lawyer uh, reading, you know, uh, trying to do uh, to get around the law, if you will. That's how you win cases in court. And uh, in motor racing, uh, that's how you win races. You know, if you really press the envelope to the limit and uh, get away with it. And that's the trick for a driver, the same thing. You know, as a driver, you got to go right to the limit uh, otherwise, you're not going to do it. You're not. Somebody else will. Uh, so that's you know that's the challenge, and, uh, and that's what makes it interesting, of course. You know, with let's say the from the Formula One cars from the '70s and, and '80s versus today, uh, for you, how d difficult was it to race Monaco, knowing you were literally shifting gears by hand and not f flicking the back of the steering wheel? Well, you know, you just did it. Everybody else had to do it, you know. So it's like anything, you know, a lot of time I hear even say, oh, well, it's going to get windy. You know what? Is it going to be windy only for yourself? It's windy for everybody. So you just deal with it. It's whoever deals with it better. I'll give you another example. Uh, you know, I get complaints. Are you come, oh, the track is so bumpy. Well, you know what? Deal with it. And maybe you can deal better. I, to be honest with you, I love bumpy tracks. I always said that. 
You know why? Because that's another area you could conquer. There's somebody out and some of the other, even, you know, technically you think to yourself, uh, you know, I think I can handle that better and I'm going to work on that because that's where you get an, an advantage. I mean, anybody can drive on a smooth track. Anybody. You see what I mean? So uh, that's my point. You know, it's uh, so, uh, you know, in those days, okay, you, had to, uh, you know, the, uh, you had to shift gears like five, 5,000 times a race, you know, so you did. You had a little, yeah, you had a blister in your right hand, you know, and, and that's good, you know, so that means you were working. Uh, so uh, that, that, that's it. And uh, yeah, uh, it's amazing, you know, you had to do some time, you know, you had to use the clutch in, in a lot of situations too, where, you know, today, boom, boom, all you do it, you know, but then you're expected to go quicker because you have less to do. So it, uh, still the, the, the job of the driver is still very much the same, quite honestly. You know, if, uh, it's like anything else. You, uh, if you're given more tools to the job, you just expect it to go faster. Well, then let me and, ask you this, Mario, because this year in Formula One at Spa, they only raced three laps behind the safety car because of the rain. But in 1976 at the Japanese Grand Prix, it rained. Nicky decided to retire on his own and saying that the race was too dangerous. How should Formula One handle extremely wet racetracks? Should they just grow a pair and, and race because of race car drivers? I, uh, you know, uh, maybe, uh, uh, I don't know, I'm too much of a purist, I suppose, but uh, at the same time, I, f I figure, you know what, when you're on that dance floor, you gotta dance whether you like the music or not. And, uh, and you know, if it's dangerous, all you do is you deal accordingly. You know, if you know that there's a river, uh, you just do what you need to do in, in a river across a track, which is obviously the most dangerous part, you know, in the wet, because the aquaplane there. But you just do it. You do it the way you should do it. It's there for everyone to deal the same way. So I could never, ever, you know, they said, okay, anytime you say something about safety, then, uh, then you get into the, uh, I don't know, uh, it, it it becomes sticky, if you will, you know. Uh, so uh, I, I like the sport, you know, has got an element of danger, and um, and so uh, you just uh, I, I could have never. I thought I, I was crying that day. I was crying for the spectators that were out there, you know, and it went for for six, seven hours, and then all of a sudden they gave them three pace car laps and then and then um, and then decide to, uh, to to call it and then not even uh, you know reschedule for the next day that that was uh, uh, I don't think that was acceptable in my, in my opinion no, so I agree I think that they should have postponed it came back the next day NASCAR does it all the time and uh, and I can't see why <laughs> Formula One did the same thing. But let's, I want to move on a little bit to the IndyCar. What was your relationship like with Nigel Mansell at Newman Haas during the 93-94 season? Oh, we were like brothers. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> you being facetious there? <laughs> a little bit. But, uh, you know, it was just one of those things. I think uh, he captured, uh, you know, the imagination of the team and everyone else. And, uh, you know, he was treated really well there. And, um uh, there were some other things that I'm not going to talk about, but uh, uh, some advantages that he had. But uh, other than that, he still did a great job himself. I can't take that away from him. Uh, 
I mean, the Nigel Mansell's a darn good driver, you know, and then he took advantage of that. Some of those advantages disappeared the following year, as you can see, then he disappeared. So, uh, but at the same time, still, you know, he, uh, credit where credit is due. Well, let me ask you, I'll ask you a, a nicer question. How was your relationship with Paul Newman? <laughs> uh, awesome. I tell you, I, I miss that man. I could say I miss that man when I look at this picture in my office. Um, you know, uh, he meant so much to me in my life. He was, uh, you know, just to have him in my life for, for so many years um, is something that I cherish, obviously, forever. And um, just to know how we met and how we sort of, we, we kept a, a, some sort of relationship throughout until we finally uh, came together, you know, uh, on a team and uh, going for the same objectives. Um, but what a hell of a guy this guy. Uh, this man was in many ways we uh, obviously had the opportunity to spend some social time together and he was a hoot I mean he really was it was so much fun uh, uh, we were up I have a place uh, in the Poconos I have a lake and uh, all the toys in the world there and some of them are quite dangerous and uh, you know he was one of those he would delve into it you know anything that was really challenging I mean he'd go for it and uh, I love that uh, about him so uh, yeah there's so many so many situations like that that uh, yeah brings back just um, just fond memories as you can imagine well did he ask you uh, some racing advice because I know that he loved racing yeah, we talked about things yeah of course uh, you know it's interesting um, uh, we were testing a road car a, uh, a, uh, a, a Mustang Cobra down in uh, in, in Atlanta um, uh, and um, and he, uh, he he knew that track very well. You know, obviously the SCCA did a lot of races there, and uh, and so uh, he uh, we were comparing uh, the this uh, Mustang with the Camaro. You know, that was a factory test, and um, and so uh, he, he uh, one one of the he goes out there and uh, and he really he ran a quick time. He ran quicker time than the. Ford test driver then the Ford test but he, he was asking me something he, he rode with me a couple of days oh yeah he says I was doing this he said you're doing that and so on and so forth and he goes out and then the Ford driver goes out there try to uh, be go quicker than Paul and he crashed the car you know, so, <laughs> I don't know if he lost the job or not but the, <laughs> he crashed the car <laughs> so there you go but Paul like I said he was uh, he was one guy always up for a challenge and uh, I loved him well, let's, let me ask you something about the Indy 500. Why is it so difficult to win that race? Well, it's, it's a matter of uh, reliability. You know, that's what I suffered. Uh, that's why I just, um, you know, as much as I would never give up, you know, anything that I've ever done or the opportunity to have uh, gone through the decades and, and like we talked earlier, you know, learning about all the development and that things. But uh, at the same time, uh, today, the way the rules are, you know, the cars have the best chance of uh, finishing unless you, there's a mistake or a crash or something. But usually the, the engines just don't blow up anymore because you don't take everything out of them. You know, they're supposed to mileage out. And, wow. um, and that's the problem that, that I had, I mean, uh, throughout my career, the, this type of rule never came into effect until, uh, I don't know, 
2004, five or six, I think, even in Formula One. And then you can see that now almost like the entire field finishes the races because you, you just don't have blow-ups, you know. And uh, and that's one thing that I probably blew up seven, 70,000 engines in my career, you know, just <laughs> that, you know, sometimes three a week, you know, and um, it's uh, different times and different different regulations. Well, in 2003, you were 63 years old, going to Indy. You were going to try to qualify Tony Kanan's car, which was for your son Michael's team. Is that where you did the massive somersault on the back stretch at Indy? Well, yeah, the somersault was actually uh, coming out of turn one. Uh, but, um, you know, it was, it was one of those things that um, uh, I was slipstreaming uh, Kenny Brack, you know, I was doing practice, was doing practice, uh, was free practice. And um, and I was trying to get a big lap time, you know, because by myself, I was quickest that day. And um, and so anyway, uh, he, he had an engine go, he blew up the engine, and he had a big crash. And um, there was a chunk of the wall, part of the safe wall that was in the middle of the track. And I hit that in the car, and my car started flying up in the air, and I had three flips backwards um, but it was just one of those things I had no warning whatsoever because during practice you don't have all the communications that you do during uh, an official practice if you will um, because I was actually uh, testing the car in case I would have had to qualify that car because Tony Kanan had a wrist injury a week before and at a race in Japan and uh, it was a minor injury, but it was a question that he could not potentially qualify, but he could definitely race. And in Indianapolis, the way the rules are, if a, you know, a qualified driver can qualify the car, if another drive takes over, as long as you're fast, within the 33 fastest car, you have to start last. You know? mm -hmm. So at least you're protecting that, uh, that he, he can race, you know, protection for the sponsors. And that's all. I, that that was my objective there for for my son. He asked me to do that, and uh, so yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and I was right on pace. Quite honestly, I felt really good with the car. The car was set up quite nicely, and uh, and you know, we learned a lot that day. And uh, and unfortunately, it ended up the way. But if I had to qualify, if I still had to qualify for him, I would have. Not a problem. Yeah, I, I bet you could still qualify today. Well, I don't know. I, I think, yeah, I, I think I could do that. Yeah. I, yeah. At least in my own mind, I think I could do that. Yeah. Well, now, are you still driving that double seat Indy car? Yes. Yes, of course. Of wow. course. Now, how does one get to do that? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, in, I'm in really enjoying it uh, for a lot of reasons, obviously. Uh, it gives me maybe just even some. Uh, uh, reason to, to, to even to stay more physically fit, if you will. Uh, but uh, at the same time, it's, it's really a, it's a great thing for the sport, quite honestly, to, to showcase. There's no better way to showcase our sport because it's such a non-participant sport in so many ways. Uh, and um, I just love uh, the comment that you get from passengers, you know, many times. I think they come away with uh, a different, much more appreciation for what's going on. Uh, as far as what the drivers have to go through and all that. Because sometimes I hear that comment all the time. It's, oh, we only did two laps and, 
and the race today is, you know, uh, if it's on the Roku, it's 90 laps or it's 20, you know what I mean? And then you got so many cars around you. I don't know how you guys do it. You know what I mean? It's that kind of a thing. So, um, and, and on the other side, I truly enjoy myself. Well, you know, I love the fact that IndyCar is coming back to be so popular. You know, the, the years of the IRL, I don't know what that was all about. We went from CART to IRL back to IndyCar, and I am so glad to see that people are getting more and more excited every season with all of the drivers. And here, here we are, have what, uh, Alex Palou won the championship this year, and he's only, what, 24 years old? That's incredible. Oh, it's uh, the series is really at a good place right now uh, with so much talent, so much really young talent. And also, I keep saying the veterans are still young enough. They're going to be around for quite some time. And uh, so you got a great mix of drivers. Um, they got a strong international participation, plus really good. Finally, got a good crop of uh, American young guys out there that uh, represent uh, the future of our sport and in a very strong positive way so yeah it's uh, it's fun it's a it's some some great racing as you know you know that we've been watching uh, especially this season uh, I think and uh, and it's uh, it's better and better so uh, now guys are place right now well I'm hearing of course we're all hearing a lot of the news in Formula One that your son Michael Andretti, is looking for a team is he going to be the one that brings the american drivers back to formula one well that's uh, that's his intention ultimately you know it's no secret he's been kind of looking he's had this idea in his head for the last couple of years and he's uh, just uh trying to to find that proper opportunity if it comes um and um, he has some great people behind him you know, to, to do this thing properly. So, um, I, you know, I'm so proud of him because he's so ambitious. Uh, as you can see, if you look at the, uh, the, the amount of disciplines that he participates in as an owner, you know, that's, that, that, that's really interesting in my opinion. And, uh, and, you know, kudos to him, you know, he, uh, he really looks at uh, motor racing as uh, it, not just one particular discipline. You know, he embraces it all. He looks at sports cars and everything, and and he had look at uh, even opportunities in, in NASCAR, which you know that could happen sometime in the future. I mean, he's got uh, he's in uh, the uh, the supercars in Australia, you know, which is uh, like NASCAR of Australia, you know, if you will, you know. So uh, again. Uh, he, uh, nothing uh, is off limits for him, and um, and again, sooner or later, uh, I think he, I would suspect that he'll be there. Yeah, and I think Michael is really in the great greatest position to be the next Roger Penske uh, of our time, and uh, because he's got a lot of Mario in him too, so that helps. Well, you know, uh, the beautiful thing about uh, anything in the sport, uh, it's someone that's done something more or better than you and motivates you. And he's motivated by that. You know, he's still young enough, you know, that, uh, you know, he keeps winking at Roger, you know, I said, like, okay, Roger, like at Indy, he has, I don't know, 16, 17 races and Michael only has five, but he's second to Roger as a team owner of winners. And he said, Roger, I'm, you know, I'm beginning to 
I'm beginning to see you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I like that. And I think, um, uh, again, uh, right now, this, I don't know any other uh, team that uh, is involved in so many, uh, so many disciplines as Michael is uh, right now, even as, as we speak. You know, and, so he, he spreads his wings. And he really has an eye for talent as well. Uh, I think so. I think uh, he, uh, Michael knows quite well just uh, what makes the, the world go around in our sport as far as uh, 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 when it comes to engineers, drivers, you know, you, you have to arm yourself with the best possible, otherwise you don't get it done. So. Uh, that's that's the secret. If, if it is a secret, but that's what you got to do. Yeah, and I'm and I'm for next season. I'm really going to be uh, rooting for Roman Grosjean. I know he signed with Andretti, and uh, I really would love to see him not only win his first IndyCar race because he, he's right there, but I believe he could end up being running for the championship, and I hope he wins it. Well, you know, he's a very interesting character, you know, and uh, he's done well in Formula One. I uh, I remember actually the first time that I presented the trophies uh, at uh, Austin, uh, he was on the podium with the Renault at, at the time, and he had a few podiums in Formula One. He had some uh, close potential uh, wins, and uh, he's, he's, a, he's a good driver. He showed that clearly. And he's loving what he's doing. He's loving this because he likes the fact that, um, you know, it's not as technical as Formula One, the series, but because, you know, it's, it's a spec series. But from a driver's standpoint, you're pretty much driving the same thing as the guy next to you, you know. So uh, it gives you a lot of that confidence. You know what? Uh, I got the same material here under me as you do. So maybe uh, it's my day today, you know, that kind of a thing. Yeah, and I like that. I like the fact that IndyCar is really a driver series. It you is, never is. know who's going to win the next it race. It's not as predictable as Formula One is. So I think that's why a lot of fans are gravitating to IndyCar. But Mario, what is next for Mario Andretti? Just uh, keep living the dream. Doc, I uh, trying to do all the things that I enjoy. Um, close to the sport. I'm just uh, loving the fact that uh, Michael uh, and Jeff, you know, they all give me reason to stay close to the sport. Um, and uh, I have a wonderful daughter who looks after me now when my wife is gone. And uh, I'm, a, I'm surrounded by a great team uh, around me, you know, Amy, Patty, and um, my man. So uh, again, we're staying busy. We have uh, some good businesses that uh, that are doing well for us. So, uh, yeah, we have a lot on the plate and I love it. I'm doing a lot of traveling. I haven't given up anything yet. So we keep on going. Well, Mario, I want to thank you so much for honoring us with your presence and your time today to uh, walk us through not only your career, but also some of your thoughts and opinions on today's racing and many blessings to you and your family. Thank you very much, Doctor. I'm very impressed at how much you know about our sport, and I love that. Well, I have followed uh, all, all the racing series my whole life. I still remember the first time that I saw a Formula One race on television. It was the 1975 Monaco Grand Prix. Of course, Nicky won that particular race. When it came to NASCAR, I think the first televised one that I actually saw on my little black and white TV when I was a kid 
is when Richard Petty won the actual race, when he was actually in third, but Kel Yarborough and uh, Bobby Allison decided to have a fight uh, after their little crash. So uh, I followed racing forever and uh, being here in Houston, you know, the town of AJ Foyt and uh, seeing him, seeing him race midgets in the Astrodome. And I still remember him flipping the car over and ended that race early, but uh, racing. Oh my gosh. There's no greater sport. Than auto. I raced the midget at the Astrodome, Don. You have raced, I the, raced the midget at the Astrodome. Well, you may have been in that same race. <laughs> <laughs> you know, being being AJ being the hometown hero, that's all they were probably promoting. But uh, yeah. again, Mario, it, again, it's been a pleasure and an honor to have this time with you today. And uh, you are always welcome back to the show. Thank you so much.